Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, Antioch. I'm happy to be with you again, especially in these really strange times right now. I'm on retreat as I record this sermon for you. Um, You know, that seems like an oxymoron. I'm doing some work while I'm on a retreat. And I kind of thought that too. So I was actually going to try to get this sermon in ahead of time so that I would have it all behind me when I met God here at the coast. But this time, the work that I've been given to do turns out to be the rest that I actually needed. So we're going to look today at Psalm 23. It's a familiar passage. Um, It's walked over so often, I think sometimes we've walked some ruts into it. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that with a passage like this, um, we assume and accept some things that aren't really there in the passage. And at the same time, we miss or ignore some things that are waiting to bless us in plain sight. This really is an extraordinary psalm. It's an amazing piece of scripture, and it's especially relevant given these times that we're in. There's scary circumstances, and we're all trying to navigate them together. So stick with me today. I want you to be open. Even if you what you hear doesn't surprise you, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to impress you anew with these six short verses written by David. I'm looking at the ESV translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now the Psalms, many of which turn out to be songs, they all fall into this category of biblical poetry. The poems in Bible days were way more than just a fancy way to say things. In those days, they served a very specific purpose. More than 30% of the Bible is made up of poetry. Prophets and preachers and teachers like Paul often broke into poetic verse just when they wrote or they spoke. And most of what God says, he speaks in poetry in the Old Testament. Most of what Jesus says in the New Testament is poetry and parable. One of my favorite quotes is from a poet named Padraig Otuma. And what Padraig says of poetry is he says, I think sometimes people think that poetry is this lofty art to which the ordinary everyday experience bows down. It is in fact the other way around. Poetry bows down to the unexpected human encounters, to unexpected moments, to meetings with strangers that we have something surprising that comes out of nowhere that we want to hold and honor and bow down to. 
and the poem tries to do that with us. Psalm 23 is David's way of bowing down to an unexpected encounter with God. Even though it's familiar to us, it was something that was surprising to him. Something, as Otuma says, that seems to come quite out of nowhere. If it didn't carry such specialness, such emotion, there would really be no reason to express it in poetry. It's hard to imagine that because the psalm is so familiar to us, but also because of some very common ideas that we have about Psalm 23. So before we go on, I want to replace or at least add to two of those common ideas. You know, it's often heard that you 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 hear Psalm 23 spoken of and recited at funerals to comfort people who are grieving. But Psalm 23 is without a doubt a poem for the living. It is active and it's dynamic. The psalmist is not mourning. He is moving throughout the entire poem. Kenneth Way, who teaches Old Testament at Biola University, says, even the phrase valley of the shadow of death is not referencing the eventuality of death itself, but a position in which one is threatened by the prospect of death. That is quite a big difference, he says. The psalm is for the living and not for the dead. Secondly, this is not a psalm about sheep and shepherds. Well, not exactly. It's actually a royal psalm. It's a psalm about the covenant relationship between King Yahweh and King David. The images are all there for us to see. Kings all over the Near East, from Egypt to Mesopotamia at various time periods, metaphorically referred to themselves as shepherds. Ancient depictions of Ramses II and King Tut, they include a shepherd's staff. Nobody assumed that these guys were looking after sheep when they ascended to the throne. And then when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, he uses the shepherd as a metaphor, but the people of that culture, they would have understood that to also mean that he was alluding to his kingship as well, which is why him talking about the good shepherd ticked him off so much. And then there is verse five, thou anointest my head with oil. That picture alone of David having his head anointed as he is appointed and legitimized as king pegs this more royal than pastoral. You know, I've always imagined this to be a poem that David wrote to remind himself of the God who was with him when he was a boy, caring for his father's sheep and fighting a lion and a bear when he was tending to, the, to his father's flock, and also with him when he was loneliest, because he surely felt lonely as the forgotten son of Jesse. I admit that I have preached that and that I've heard that sermon a few times. I'd see myself as a sheep, dumb, scared, prone to wandering. Now, I'm not saying that picture is wrong, but what I am saying is that the primary focus of this psalm is not a sheep being watched over by a shepherd, as much as it is that a king is being watched over by the king. Because David uses God's covenant name Yahweh or Jehovah when he refers to him. So this poem is expressing a covenant God. And it's 
the covenant that God has made with his people. And whenever you see that name, um, it carries with it the weight of God's agreement with Abraham and all of his descendants. So it goes beyond Abraham to David and beyond David, and eventually it makes its way to us. It's so much more than a poem. It's a promise. So let's think into the sink of that for just a moment. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Instead of saying, God is my shepherd and a shepherd does thus and so, try restating it. And when you restate it, say it from Jehovah's point of view. I am Jehovah and I have made a covenant with you. I will provide, guide, feed, and lead you. I will not let you perish in the wilderness. You have my promise. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When you see these words through a covenant lens, the language of it becomes really familiar. The writer of Hebrews, for example, he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So as you walk through these really familiar words of this psalm, we would do well to remember that a boy did not write these words. A man who was a king, with all the things that a king is called to control and manage, is writing about this. He's writing about the one who oversees him. When I see that, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in here. I can give up the false belief that I have to be in control because God is over me as I oversee my responsibilities. God is over me. He's over all that threatens to overwhelm me. And he sees me when others overlook me or underestimate me. So what are you trying to manage? What's threatening to overwhelm you? Do you know what it feels like to be overlooked or underestimated? We're in the grip of a global pandemic right now. We're in a very divided country. We're having an economic downturn. There's so much stuff right now that's out of control. Nothing, however, slips through the fingers of God. Nothing gets past his eyes. No one is beyond the reach of his love or his grace. I remember when I was in the hospital and my girlfriend Nina came to visit me and she asked me what I wanted her to sing. She's an amazing singer. And all I could think of was for her to sing His Eyes on the Sparrow. Because what I needed the most at that time was to know that in this period where I was being overwhelmed by my sickness, I needed to know that somebody was looking out for me. As a single female, I was always by myself. And it's important for me to know that I'm being looked after and that I am cared for and that the buck doesn't always have to stop with me when it comes to caring for me. Now I'm going to ask you to stop right here for a really nerdy pause in our programming. Now it's important to know a few more things about biblical poetry before we move forward. 
What separates poetry from prose, from narrative, from exposition are two kinds of structure. First, poetry is comprised usually, biblically, of couplets, sets of um, ideas or sets of sentences that develop one another. So for example, with Psalm 1, um, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. So you have blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. But then it contrasts it, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So you have this couplet here, or you have Psalm 139, God, you've searched me and you know me, you know my getting up and my sitting down. That's full of couplets. And so what it does is it develops an idea by stating it more than once. And so then the other thing that separates it is that the layout of the entire poem is structured in such a way that biblical poetry tends to work itself to the middle. It works itself from the outside to the very middle of the poem and the, and the, the, the line or pair of lines in the very center of the, the psalm is always the place that carries the central idea of the psalm and the main theme of the poem. So the purpose for this is the opposite of the purpose for narrative or prose. When you're thinking about narrative or prose or exposition, the goal is to actually move the reader forward, to move the person who's actually looking at the piece of work from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, till you get to the end and it's important for you to be able to move. Poetry is actually the opposite. Poetry is designed to actually make you stop. In particular, biblical poetry is made to make you stop moving and actually meditate on, chew on, um, chew over and over again on a particular idea and go deeper and deeper and deeper. In fact, the whole poem is actually not made to only be read once. It's read to be, it's made to be read over and over again so that with multiple readings, you get deeper and deeper and deeper in your understanding. So in other words, poetry is, is designed for soaking. It's not for stopping and seeing the truth, but rather the goal of poetry is for you to be stopped by the truth that you see, that you say, ah, this is amazing. That's why a lot of the New Testament writers, they'd be writing narrative or they'd be writing exposition. They'd come to a place where all they could do is marvel at how good God is. Colossians 1 is, is an example of that. And you just stop and go, oh, Paul was good for breaking into a psalm or a poem. So if you read, for example, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, that's a poem set within some narrative. And you'll see the, the different couplets within that. So anyway, all of that said, when we look at Psalm 23, the question you want to ask yourself is, what's the center of this psalm? It's in verse 4. And it's a phrase that in Hebrew is, Ki ata amadi, you are with me. It comes exactly halfway into the psalm by word count, as many words before it as there are after it. 
this phrase, ki ata amadi, you are with me, is the is, is where the poem is traveling into and what the poem is traveling out of. This idea that God is with David. Even David makes this transition in the writing. When you get to that phrase in Psalm 23, the, the poem changes. It goes from him telling us about Jehovah to him talking to Jehovah. The language stops being third person. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside. He restores my soul. I walk through the valley of shadow of death and I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and and your staff, they comfort me. He stopped talking to us. He's now talking to God. He is very specifically now having a conversation with God. There's a point where he moves from talking about God to talking to God, or from communicating with God to communing with God, from focusing on aligning his on, on aligning God's will to his wishes to aligning his wishes to God's will. And so most of the Psalms, this one included, want us to be changed by our encounters with God transformed, redirected, healed, comforted in our pain, and given peace in our fear. In this season of change and challenge, I've been tempted to move from here to the next place quickly, because let's face it, a lot of us are over here, and we would rather be there, wherever there is. We just don't care. The world of Psalm 23 is one of change and challenge. Enemies pursue. Food is not immediately available. Water is scarce. The valley of the shadow of death is unavoidable. But ki ata amadi, but you are with me. And so I want for nothing, David says. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that just like God? Something or somebody wants to devour me, and God says, eh, Sit, eat, enjoy, I got this. But he takes it a step further. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Those words, goodness and mercy, tov and hesed. Tov is is the word that we find in Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth and God saw that it was good. And we see this word over and over. God saw that it was good, that it was good, that it was good because it is good in essence and in nature and it is a very good thing. And then there is hesed, which speaks to this faithfulness, this zeal that you have to actually chase after the object of your hesed and show mercy and show loyalty. Even with enemies chasing me, David says, ki ata amadi, which means there's nothing following me that will not ultimately get swallowed up in God's goodness and mercy. It's Romans 8.28. He will turn all things to the good, no matter what they are. That is, that is a New Testament version of surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life to say that God works all things together for good to those who 
love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, how can you not be stunned by that? How can you not bow down to that? How can you not be undone and stopped by that truth? In Psalm 23, we see our faithful God always pursuing, protecting, providing. We also see ourselves. We see, if we're open to it, that we are precious and that we're looked after. We also see our Savior foreshadowed, Jesus, the fullness of Jehovah in the flesh. He is our shepherd and our king. So I want you to sit with Psalm 23 this week, not as a scholar, not as a skeptic, but sit with it as yourself in all your responsibilities, with all your resources or lack thereof, open yourself up to whatever impressions the Lord wants to make on you and in you. I want to end with this prayer from Padre Gotuma. He says, God of the story, you are in and out of the stories we read, calling us into them and calling us out of them. Give us the courage to listen to our curiosities as we read old stories. Dare us to ask questions hidden in the heart of the text. Lead us to mine with heart and mind and desire and desperation, the many things in one story. Because this is where we find you, and this is where you will find us. Amen. Bye-bye, Antioch.